All right, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 17 today. It's not going to be up on the screens because any time that we have a passage that doesn't have a combination to it or a blended gospel, we want to make sure to read out of our physical Bibles because that's what you're going to be reading out of at home. I want you to be able to navigate and know your Bibles backwards and forwards. So we're in John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 903 if you're new. 903, that you can jump right to it. We are in part 86 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled this morning's message, Jesus, Our Glorious High Priest. But let me just say this before we even get started. You are blessed. I'm blessed. And we're blessed because of where we are right now. You came to church, but you know that you are the church. I was talking with a buddy of mine. We were praying for you earlier this morning. And I was talking about the fact that I don't believe very much in sacred space. That's just space that is just special. What I believe is when God's people inhabit a space, it makes it sacred. And, and I believe that you have walked into this and you are not just at church. You're not just at a gathering. You're not here merely to hear motivational speaking. You are not here merely to sing songs. You have walked into a different environment that you are now in a place where you are surrounded by people with the Holy Spirit. That means that there is uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit next to you and another one on your other side and another one. And now we have a thousand of us gathered together and focusing on God, that this is a place that is prayer saturated. Uh, on Saturday night service, I have someone that comes and prays with me in my office before I launch out on the first service. On Sunday, I have someone else that comes in for my intercessor team and pray for this weekend. I want to tell you what we pray about. We pray about you. Here's the prayers that we pray. Father, for the babies in the nursery, I don't know how many of you dropped off a baby in the nursery. Uh, if you have, uh, anyone Pre-K, can you just raise your hand if you got a little one pre-K? Anybody out there? All right, there's a whole bunch of you. Let me tell you what we pray. We pray that while your baby is being held, they're breathing in the presence of God. That while they're being held, that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person holding them is allowing them to feel safe, allowing them to feel right. We don't know how all childhood development works, but what we do know is there's certain foundational blocks that are laid that a baby can feel whether or not their world is peaceful and safe or not. We understand that if they lack human touch, if they lack the ability to be cared for, there is certain deficiencies in them. What we pray is over your baby that in the back while they're being held, that God is building them and knitting them together. That we pray, amen, right there, yeah? We pray that these hallways would be saturated. We pray that the angels would stand at the doorway, not just guarding from the enemy, but blessing your heart and touching you as you move by. We are praying that your youth would get fired up for the Lord and would transform your household. We are praying for the seats that you sit in would be ready and that this whole atmosphere would be like the tent of meeting where God's presence lowers down like a cloud over this place. You did not just come to church. You're in the presence of God. Yeah, amen. 
you have not only begun to praise God, and in his praises, he communicates his presence to man. Not only have you done that, but you're about to hear the word of God that will transform you, not because of the presentation. Actually, what we have prayed is that you would forget the band and remember the worship song, that you would forget the speaker and you'd remember the message. That what we are praying for is that as I read out the word to you and as we begin to talk about it, that the active and alive word that can separate soul and spirit, bone and marrow, the same word that has come alive and dwelt among us, that this would become alive and active in your life and you'd be transformed by it. Make no mistake, you are not merely going to a location. You're soaking in the presence of God. Today you will leave changed. Amen? Amen. All right. Good, good, good. So let's dive into this. Should we do stuff for God or be with God? Yes. Praise the Lord. Right, right. You all know the Bridgeway response. It's not both. It's yes. Okay. So, uh, but the order is important. The order is important. There are too many of us that are out there doing a ton of ministry that God never asked you to do. And you're burning out and you're having a hard time because God graces what he calls for. But when we operate outside of that and we're out doing nice and good things that he never asked us to do, we do not have the same empowerment as we do if it's accordance with his will or something that he asked us to do. It's very important we get the order right. We must be much with God in order to do much for God. We must be connected to the vine in order to produce fruit. You understand what I'm saying? We have to always keep that order right. We must be in prayer. We must be in the word. We must be in fellowship. We must be connected so that everything we do outward would be in alignment with what he wants. If it's in alignment with what he wants, there will be much fruit. Whether you can see it or not, there is much fruit that comes from that. Therefore, the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Unity with God leads to glory to God. Unity with God leads to glory to God. Glory is a huge deal. I will continue to tell you as long as you listen to my teaching, I will continue to pound the idea that we are here on earth for two reasons. We are here to have relationship with our heavenly father and that we are here for his glory. Those are the two reasons why we exist. Everything else is just details. Therefore, our job here at church is to constantly equip you to glorify and connect you to your father. What is glory? We're going to get into that a lot, but what we're going to study today is rich. It's not just any passage of scripture. It is the longest recorded prayer, corporate prayer of Jesus. It is called the high priestly prayer. It is the end of the last supper before he goes into the garden of Gethsemane where we all know where everything breaks loose, right? This is him hanging out with his buddies. They have been talking for hours. We are now probably around 11.45 p.m. He's just had this Passover Seder. They're wrapping this whole thing up. He begins to pray for himself, pray for his disciples and pray for us. And when you say you're right on the edge of going to the cross, what are you going to pray? What does Jesus most care about? What is he trying to shield and uh, and impart to his disciples? 
What's most on his heart right now? This is what we're going to study. And it's powerful. It's rich. This could be another four-part study. We're going to jam it all into one. That's why I had both caffeine and a donut. (laughs) Praise the Lord. John chapter 17, verse 1. Here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, many in the last four chapters of John 13, 14, 15, and 16, we are now in chapter 17. He lifted his eyes up to heaven as Jews would have for their posture of prayer that we always bow our heads and close our eyes. They would look up into heaven with their eyes open and begin to pray. I don't think Jesus had to stand up for this. I think that he did that seated down. But he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, Father, that is personal. We all know the Lord's prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yeah, we know that. But it begins with Abba in Aramaic. It is the dad statement. It is a child speaking to a father. That's very, very personal. And so he leads out again in a very personal way. And he says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is critical. This is important. Why? Because for so long in his ministry, it wasn't the hour. It wasn't the right time. The disciples have heard him say over and over, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Let me give you an example. Y'all remember the turning water to wine story? Cana in Galilee, he's hanging out at a wedding with his buddies and his mom. His mom says they ran out of wine. Son, you need to do something about it. He says, woman, it's not my time. Do you remember this? And then he ends up doing it anyway. Okay, what his point was, it's not my time to go public, but that indeed it was the time for a portion, but it was not the full time. Then his brothers who didn't believe in him, they began to chide him later on in his ministry. And they said, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go public, man? Why don't you just tell everybody, do crazy miracles? He said, it's not my time. Two times people tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to do all kinds of crazy stuff to him. It says, but he walked through the midst of them untouched. Why? For it was not his time. The disciples are used to hearing the phrase, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And right here in this prayer, he says, dad, it's time. Time for what? The culmination of everything he came to do. The time for the cross. Here's what he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Dad, make me shine that I may make you shine even more. Since you have given him authority over all humankind as king. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him, all believers. And this is actually what eternal life is. That they know you, the only true God, and they know Jesus, the Messiah, whom you have sent. Remember that eternal life is more about quality than duration. We think of eternal life as just being long. It is not long life like we have now. Eternal life is quality shaping. It is God kind of life. The way that the Bible talks about eternal life is that without it, we are dead in our sins and he makes us alive. The minute that you get, that you surrender to Jesus Christ, the minute that you allow him to lead you and guide you, that in faith you say you are legit and right. And I will live as if you are king right then. 
you come alive. Your eternal life begins at that very moment. The Bible says that you now become a partaker of the divine nature. It means something is erupted in you. The light is turned on and the darkness begins to dispel. The quality of life is deep and rich and strong. It says that you are transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's eternal life. We are operating in it now. Our bodies may change to further engage with our eternal life, but eternal life has already begun. What is eternal life? But to know personally and interact with your God. That's a whole different ballgame. All of his resources, all of all that Jesus has is transferred over into our account and we begin to operate off a whole different set of power. That's eternal life says this, I glorified you on earth, Father, verse 4. How did he do that? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All right, if we are called here to glorify God, how are we going to do that? Obedience. Now, this is a point that if you can dig into it, it's going to change your life. If not, you're going to go, ah, that's a good point. But it's true. God is glorified through obedience. I just need you to let you soak in that for a second. God is glorified through obedience. Now let me ask you a question. What has to occur for you to have the opportunity for obedience? Okay, now let your mind wander there. In other words, usually it's difficult, tough, and you don't like it, right? Obedience is not natural to us per se, The more that we submit to the Holy Spirit, the more obedience becomes natural. But understand, it fights against our flesh, right? Um, Does anybody trip out over the idea that right after Jesus gets baptized, you remember this story, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. It says, and heaven was opened and a voice said, this is my son in whom I am pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it says immediately the Holy Spirit drove him where? To the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Does anybody trip out over the fact that the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is drive him into temptation? Does that seem odd to you? It's interesting that even in the Lord's Prayer, it even says it in there. And lead us not into temptation. What? Why are we having to pray that to God? I thought the Bible said that, and when tempted, let no man say that God is tempting me, for God tempts no one, but by your own sins, you are enticed and your desire leads you away, right? So how does this work? How does it work in combining together that you, that Jesus was led into a place where he would be tempted? Because I'll tell you this, by the time he got out of that desert, it says he came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Something happened in the desert there that was transformative. What was it? Opportunities for obedience. What you're going to find out is that God is not interested in removing the difficulty. He's interested in being glorified through the difficulty. Now, if you let that soak into your spirit, it changes your whole perspective on life. Because we always want to avoid that which is uncomfortable. The more things are going awesome for you, the more things are going smooth and easy for you, the less glory rises. Be thinking about that one for a little bit, right? 
it moves on. It says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence back up in heaven with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Quick question. Why did Jesus come here? I'm sure there's hundreds of reasons. What reason is it in your mind? Uh, Depending on your religious background, your training, different verses will come to mind. If I said to you, why did Jesus come? Some of you were raised up in an evangelistic background. Your response would be to seek and save that which is lost, right? Some of you came from a charismatic background and you would say Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Some of you come from different backgrounds and you hear different things. I came up with four off the top of my head. And what's so fascinating is the four main reasons why I think Jesus came all culminated on the cross. All of them were directly impacted and the exclamation point was on the cross. Let me just recount those for you. I believe that the Bible tells us Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Where did he do that more powerfully than on the cross, right? It says that he put them to public shame. A spectacle. He made a spectacle of the enemy. He embarrassed them and turned them on their head. They thought they got him, and it ended up being the redemption of mankind. Number two, I think that Jesus came to represent the Father and to display his extravagant love. Where do you see more of the love of the Father than on the cross? Right? Number three, I believe that he came to be the obedient servant that Israel never was. What demonstrated more obedience than death in a shameful way on the cross? And I believe that Jesus came to save the world from their sins. Where did he do that? But on the cross. In other words, the cross became his place of glory. What is glory? It's that which makes you look good. Now, according to the definition in the dictionary, it's public praise, honor, and fame. Something that brings praise or fame to someone or something. Something that's a source of great pride, great beauty, or splendor. Glory is what makes you look good. It's what makes other people go, wow. Now, that's going to be different for all of us. We have different places where we have glory, either for good or bad. There are some of you that are just flat out more attractive than the rest of us. Not all men are created equal. I'm just telling you. There are some people I look at and I go, dang, do I feel unattractive next to you? You understand what I'm saying? Now, that may be your glory that other people actually have to go, whoa, that's very impressive. Some of you, it's your intelligence. We just can't keep up with you. The way that your mind works, the way that you spin things and put them together, we just don't get it. Some of you, it's your business sense. Some of you, it's your prayer life. Some of you, you're just more pure than the rest of us. When we talk to you, we feel immediately ugly inside that we're like, man, you're all pure like a little baby. And I just feel like wretched, right? That some of us, the glory is how God moves in your life. Some of you, it's your faith. Some of you, it's how you help and serve some that all of us have different places of glory, but Jesus's glory was seen most powerfully on the cross. Now there was more to it. Uh, whenever God allowed him to speak his message, that was glorious and made Jesus look impressive. Whenever he displayed his miracles and his power, that was glory to him. But the cross seemed to be the pinnacle of his glory, which is so ironic because what is the cross but a torture device? 
Uh, for a moment, let us camp again. This is one of my favorite games. Let's call it Why Christians Are Weird. I play this game probably every six months. Uh, why Christians Are Weird. Can we please just revisit how bizarre Christians are um, and how weird church is? Okay, if you're brand new and this is your first time at church, I'm so sorry. I totally get it. It's, it's just weird. Imagine walking into the place and you go, oh, okay, this is kind of bizarre. All this stuff is weird. Hey, what's that T thing on the wall? Oh, that T thing, that's a cross. Oh, what's that used for? Killing people. Why is it on your wall? Oh, you see, it, it, it's, it's, it's not, well, you're right. It was a Roman torture device. I get it. No, you're right. Um, but no, 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 it means something different to us. Do you understand how weird that is? Because we don't see a torture device. We don't see that you hang there until you asphyxiate. We don't see that there's blood all over the stuff. Do you remember The Passion of the Christ, the movie? A bunch of people I saw commenting online when they saw it, and they said, all that blood, that was so unnecessary. But what did you see as a Christian? His precious blood shed for the remission of sins. And, and so do you understand how weird Christianity is? Man, we're all about the blood and we have torture devices on the wall. And I mean, it's just creepy. But to us, we don't see torture. We see freedom. We see sacrifice. We see love when we're looking at that. Because to us, it was the pinnacle of his glory. We're saying no one could have done that but our Jesus and he did it and he did it perfectly. And now we are set free and now we will forever be with him because of what he demonstrated on the cross. Wow. Amen. But isn't it weird that that was his most stressful, agonizing, terrible time. We're going to read about that in the garden of Gethsemane. I know there's stuff in your life that you don't like. I know there's stuff in your life that you hate and you pray for it to go away. I know there's things that are terrible and miserable, and I just need you to know that that's where glory rises. How? Let me give you an analogy. I don't know how many of you have ever had dark depression. But let's say that depression hits so heavy that you're laying in bed, you have not been out of bed or showered for days, the shades are drawn, you don't want any light coming in, you can never imagine a world that has brightness. In that moment, you can think of nothing good. Everything has been taken away from you, except in that moment you say, I still have my Jesus. When you say that and you choose Jesus in your worst, darkest time, the demons have to pay attention because they took everything from you. They tried to wreck you and they can't take your Jesus away. You understand that at that moment, all of supernatural world has to stop and go, dang, that's impressive. Right there, glory rises. Why? Because Jesus is so powerful and so effective and so marvelous and mighty, even on your darkest day, you still have him. Understand this. Yeah, amen. Do you remember that the book of Job is about glory? What did Job ever do? Nothing but cry. But glory rose that day. It was not about what Job accomplished. It was what Job did not release. He never released his God. God was always with him. So what I want you to understand is that even in the difficulty, even in the hardship, I know you want it to be away. But it is an opportunity for obedience. It is an opportunity for glory. 
show the supernatural world that they can't take away your Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? It moves on. Jesus said this in verse 6. I have manifested, I have made tangible and clear your name, Father, your character, your nature to the people whom you gave me, my followers, the believers. And you gave them to me out of the world, out of godless society. Yours they were by design and selection, but you gave them to me for my care and instruction. And they have kept your word. They have been obedient and faithful to follow me. Now they, my followers, know that everything that you've given me is from you. They now know that I'm legit. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, trusting them as truth, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Okay, one clarification before we move on. John uses the phrase, the world... In two different ways, and it gets a little confusing. So let me try to make it easy. In one sense, he means the earth and all us little critters on it, right? That is the world. So in some ways, it's not negative. It just is what it is. He's saying that we're all here in the world. We all have flesh. We're all walking around on this planet, stuff like that. That's the world. That is a neutral. But then we end up hearing an explanation of the enemy that we only have three enemies, which are what? The world, the flesh, the devil. Now, let me make a side comment on this. ISIS is not ultimately our enemy. Do you understand the horrific stuff that they have done? Now, am I all for shutting them down? Oh, yeah. I got no problem with messing with the symptom. What I'm saying is, when I was growing up, there was a terrorist organization called Hamas. And then all of a sudden they became out of vogue and it became Al-Qaeda. And then they went out of vogue and now it's ISIS. In other words, there's always another terrorist organization. Why? Because they're not the root cause. They're merely the symptom. Who's doing it? Satan is running the show. He's causing all these. And when we chop off that one, he rises up more with hatred. And then he rises up more with hatred. He is actually where our prayers need to be directed at, at to the very core. Now, like I said, I got no problem dealing with the symptoms. I got no problem shutting them down and knocking them out. What I'm telling you is there's always going to be more because it's not from them. Human beings aren't our problem. Our problem is supernatural. We fight the world, the flesh, the devil. When you hear that phrase, the world, don't just think planet Earth. You have to think godless society. There are things in our society that are good. There are godly things in our society, even though they're not called that. For example, we're entering into the Christmas season, and the Christmas season is going to have a ton of secular people doing awesome things. There's going to be drives for this and toys for that. And there's going to be loving on people and giving sacrificially. There's going to be tons of good stuff. And that is because of a God hangover. All good and perfect gifts come from our Father in heaven. That means everything, that just has the spirit of God in it, even though they are not acknowledging that that's what it is. But there's a lot of stuff in our society that does not have God, yes? Okay, that godless part of our society is called the world. It would be that which is antithesis or anti-God. That's what John says. So you either have the planet and all us people, or you have godless society. Both of them are called the world. 
He uses them interchangeably and spins them around in the same conversation. So having that clarity, let's keep moving forward. It says this in verse 9. Jesus said, I am praying for them, my followers. By the time Jesus comes back, there's 120 of them at Pentecost, men and women. He said, I'm praying for my 120. I am not praying for godless society. Why? You go, I thought that, no, hold on. Why aren't you praying for godless society? Because the prayer he's about to pray means God help them to be strengthened and thrive. You don't want godless society to strengthen and thrive, right? So he's not praying for that. I'm not praying for godless society, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in my followers. They make me look good. And I'm no longer in hostile earth or godless society. He starts talking as if he already moved on. It's like he's reflecting. It's almost a done deal. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are still on earth in a hostile territory and among godless society. But I am coming to you, Father, up in heaven. And then he uses this cool phrase, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Holy Father, how cool is that phrase? Once again, goes back to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does hallowed mean? Holy. Holy Father. Why that's so important is because it balances out the nature of God. Father is personal. Holy is set apart. And the problem is, is in our prayers, we lean one of the two ways. We either lean towards the holiness of God, where the respect is high, but he feels aloof. Or we lean towards the personal side, the father side, and we think that it doesn't matter what we do. There's no consequence to sin. When he says it, he says, holy father, which balances the two sides. There's a game that I like to play called Lance's King. Uh, Maybe you don't play this one. Uh, You should. It's a blast. Uh, In the game Lance's King, I was thinking about this the other day that if I was king and doing the kingdom business and everybody was, you know, I was kind of running the kingdom You know what I would do when my kids get home from school? I would stop all kingdom business and I would just chat with my girls and find out what's going on in their day. Now, is it as important as the kingdom business? Probably not, but that's my girls. So y'all are going to have to wait. That's how our father is. He's busy orchestrating reality. He's speaking things into existence. He's shaping and moving angels. He's shutting down the demonic. He's storming the gates of hell. He's doing all this and we pray and he goes, guys, hold up. What's that? What do you need? Well, dad, I was, you know, my bike broke. I'm sorry. Hey guys, hold on a second. Hey, Gabriel, come here for a second. You know anything about bikes? (laughs) Right? Is, is that he carries out the kingdom business, but he wants to hear from his kids. And he'll shut down kingdom business and, and look right at you and say, you want to talk to me? My heart is yours. It's beautiful. Have, holy Father, keep them in your character and nature that you have given me as the Son of God. That they may be one, that they may be unified, even as we in the Trinity are one and unified. 
While I was with them, I preserved them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them or defended them against external attack. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which is Judas Iscariot. So that the scripture might be fulfilled that one of them was going to betray me. But now I'm coming back to you, Father, and these things I speak while I'm on earth, that they, my followers, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's a lot of times the Bible says that Jesus tells us stuff so that our joy may be full. I'm not quite sure that our joy lines up with our actual blessings. Let me tell you an example. I get asked a lot because I'm around loving people, which is you. I get asked a lot, Pastor, what can we pray for you, which I think is awesome. I have an intercessory team that prays for me and they fast and pray for me every day of the week. Now, that's creepy if, if I just think it's about me. I'm like, hey, while you're praying, I'm doing stupid things. So that's a drag. And they're like, well, that's why we're praying for you, you moron. Anyway. <laughs> but I realize that the office that I hold requires that type of defense. Because if Satan can take me down, he ends up messing with you. And I care about you, so then I allow that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that people ask me a lot, Pastor, what can I pray for you about? And I was just asked this the other day, and I had to pause. And I said, you know what? What really bugs me is that my joy level does not match my blessings. As I have all this angst, right? Oh, this isn't going right. And what about the campaign? And what about going on with the church? And are we really advancing where we need to be? And is the spirit really present here? And what's going on here? And oh, my, my daughter's having a tough time in math. And, and I'm going through all that. I've got all this angst, right? Here's the reality. My life is awesome. I have a job, right? Not everybody has a job. I have a job that I love to do. I have a church home where I have family. I have a marriage where I've been married over 20 years and it's never been stronger. I have children that are healthy and they're thriving. I have a, a house. Not everybody has a house. I have a car where I can drive where I want, when I want. I have options of food. I have a stinking cute fuzzy dog. That's my life. What in the world am I worried about? That I have so many blessings and my joy level doesn't even match it. I got all this angst for what? I keep looking right through my blessings into what I don't have. And God's getting no glory for the blessings that he has given me. And here's the reality. Let's say I lost all of that. I lost my church. I lost my job. I lost my wife. I lost my kids. Let's say I lost my dog. Here's the reality. I'm still saved. Amen. My future is bright. I am secured forever in eternity. I will be with Jesus forever. I will get a new glorified body. Things will be right. All my tears will be wiped away. Everything is right in my soul. So what am I worried about? Man, I wish my joy level matched my blessings. You know what I'm saying? Goes on. It says this. He said, um, I've given them your word, Father, the truth with a capital T. I've given them their word, and this godless society has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. And here's the key, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the hostile earth, but that you keep them protected from the evil one, Satan. Boy, all our prayers, God, get me out, get me out, get me out, get me out. 
And he said, I'll keep you in, I'll keep you in, I'll keep you in. You understand how our prayers don't align with the will of God very much? Um, You all know that I have a lot of frustration and tension over that passage in Scripture where he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What I wanted him to say next was, but I stopped him, and he didn't. He said, but I prayed for you. And when you return, meaning you're going to fall, what a drag. Jesus right off the bat is like, sorry, dude, (laughs) you're going down. (laughs) When you get back, he didn't stop the problem. He didn't remove the temptation. He didn't. He, he gave them strength to stand up in it and time to recover. Why? Because what are we here for? If we're here for glory, then why would he remove all the opportunities for glory? That doesn't even make any sense. Huh. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this godless world, just as I'm not of this world. I live here, but I'm not like them. So sanctify, separate out, make holy, equip for a God task. Sanctify them in the truth. For Father, your word is truth. Your word is what's real. As you have sent me into the hostile earth, so I'm sending my followers into the world, into godless society. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Meaning, I continue to set myself aside in obedience for your works, Father, that they may be sanctified and set apart in the truth. I do not ask for these only, my immediate 120, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? Us. What does he want for us? That they may all be one and unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We are to be united as the body of Christ, as testimony and proof and evangelism to the world because the world knows how to separate and fight what they don't know how to do is get along the problem is is here we have failed the church is not united we spend all our time in facebook posts talking about what other churches are doing wrong is that really the best use of your time well i'm trying to protect god's name god can protect his own name stop chewing on other believers Do I want to correct and speak publicly about all the stuff that I see wrong with the church? Yes, my flesh really wants to do that, but that's called the flesh. If you give full vent and spend all your time separating and attacking other believers, is it because the world, the flesh, the devil are easy for you? And so now you got all this free time to mess with me. Is it your job to spend all your time attacking believers about where their error is and what's wrong with them? Why is that suddenly your right? It's not. Stop doing it. We got a whole bunch of other bigger problems and we're nitpicking on something. Oh, no, no, no. This has got to be right. And how dare they teach that? I have error in my doctrine. Do you want them blasting me? Is that what you want? All their Facebook posts talking about where Lance is wrong and how nothing good is happening at Bridgeway and how all of you are led astray and all of you are bogus. Is that what you want? Because that's what we're doing to them. That's not right. Because here's the biggest problem with it. It makes God look silly and stupid because the whole world goes, man, we know how to create divide. I mean, why do we even need to look at the church? There's nothing. They can't even get along. 
They keep saying, oh, they're into Jesus. And this one says they're into Jesus, but they don't like each other. So clearly they're not into Jesus. And we just look foolish and it wrecks our whole testimony. If we actually were united and rocked our region the way that we should, because unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity means unity despite difference. If we were truly rocking our region and unified as churches and saying, dude, I love you. I think you're whacked, but I love you. If we could at least have that, then the whole world has to take notice because that's not natural. Amen. That was a little soapbox. He said this in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, meaning my message, Father, the miracles, the opportunities of obedience, I have given to my followers, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, united in all ways, so that the world, the godless society, may know that you have sent me as Messiah and that you have loved them like John 3:16, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, my followers, may be with me where I am in heaven. Jesus doesn't like the separation with you. How cool is that? That Jesus is talking to his dad and saying, Dad, make sure my kids are with me. Make sure my kids are with me. Make sure my kids are with me. He doesn't want to be apart from you in any way. That they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me by raising me from the dead because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous father, even though the hostile earth does not know you personally, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, your character and nature, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out from the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me close with something super cool. The way that you close a Seder or a Passover feast is you sing psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise God, and it's where we get the phrase what? Hallelujah. The way that it works is that the host leads the Passover group in a call and response prayer time. Who was the host on the Last Supper? Jesus led worship that night. And there he began to sing. He began to sing the psalms that say, even though there's going to be temporary difficulty, I'm going to triumph. On the last night they sung together. And there he began to sing and he would sing a portion of the goodness of God. And the boys would respond to him with hallelujah. And then he'd sing a little bit more and they'd say hallelujah. I don't know what his voice sounded like. Probably sounded like Parnell. Here's why. About a year ago, we had one of the darkest times of our church for our staff. Y'all walk through this with us. You get it. Our hearts were discouraged. We had bad news to tell the staff. And I brought my wife to our staff meeting because I knew that she was going to pray and love on them and just kind of hang on with everybody through the challenges. And right before we were about to tell them of the bad news, in walks Parnell. He comes in, and I had asked him to come at that time. He comes in, and he just sits and listens. And at the end, he said, Pastor, can I pray for him? 
And I said, absolutely. We sat in a circle. There's about 36 staff members at this church. We all sit in a circle together for our staff meetings. And he walked in the midst of us, in the middle of us, and began to walk around the inside of the circle, laying his hands upon our head. And he began to sing. I don't know if you've ever been sung over, but it's pretty wild. And he just began to sing worship over each and every one of us, touching our heads and praying blessing over us. And with his deep, soothing voice, our spirits began to be strengthened. I think that's what it felt like for the disciples. Because you all know that there's times in worship when you just like the song. You're like, dude, this song, I sound awesome in this song. This is totally in my range, and I'm just like, what? You know, I'm going for it and all this. And it's not even about Jesus at that point. And then your neighbor, who you're sitting or standing next to, does not have the same gift that you do. And they just sound horrid. But in the tone of their voice, you hear something that's not in yours. Authenticity. And you hear that in their tone, there is something of innocence and actually meaning what they sing. And conviction hits your spirit. You ever been in that environment? Because I'll tell you this, no one ever sung the Hallel Psalms like Jesus sang them. And those guys knew when he said the words, he meant every word. That he was locked in. And there he began to sing of the goodness of his father as if he knew the father. And he began to sing of the richness of triumph that was coming as if he knew what it was going to be like. Those guys would never forget that worship night as long as they lived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us the way that you love us. God, may we do the things that make you look good. I know there's a lot of stuff that we do that's not great. Cleanse us from that. Turn our hearts a different way. And allow us to focus on what matters, what's important, what you want. God, help us to sing authentically within our hearts every day about how great you are. For, Father, our blessings are many. Our salvation is rich. And you are to be glorified. So right now, Lord, we lift up our hearts to you afresh. And we say thank you for transforming us in this time. May we go out and be everything you designed us to be. May we go out and tell the world of our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful week. Our prayer team is up here for you.